and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. This afternoon we come to an amazing portion of God's Word yet again that we can look into together. Hebrews chapter 4. And for those of you who are visiting today or maybe if you haven't been with us for some time, we are so thankful that you are here. Uh, we are, we're a family of believers. We're a small little church family committed to the glory of Christ and the love of Christ and the preaching of His Word and loving the people of God and sharing the gospel with the lost. One of the ways that God has so given to us to grow spiritually is the preaching of the word. And so when we meet together, the high point of our meeting times is the preaching of the word. And rather than me or the preacher picking like sort of favorite verses or topical verses to teach on, uh, our habit is to preach through books of the Bible. That way God dictates what we hear and what we read and what we study together so that we're not picking and choosing our favorite topics Uh, but we're preaching what he has given to us. And so we're going through the book of Hebrews, and we come to chapter 4, verse 15, and the title of the sermon is, Jesus, your sympathizing high priest. Follow with me in your Bible. I will begin in Hebrews 4, verse 14, to give you the context. Follow with me. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace. To help in time of need. Have you ever had a time in your life when you have felt bombarded on every side? When you felt bombarded. And maybe if we think sort of in a, in a game illustration, maybe in a Nerf game war, right? Somebody gangs up on you or others do and you have Nerf bullets coming at you from every direction. Or maybe in the sporting analogy, a goalie in a soccer game or in a hockey game, then the warm-ups has all of these pucks or soccer balls coming at him from every direction, Or maybe somebody who's playing dodgeball, and they're the only one left, and all the other people have the balls, and they're throwing them, and the balls are coming from every direction to get that person out. Or maybe in your life, there has been an occasion where you thought, I feel bombarded with life situations coming at me from every direction. Every direction. And I wonder sometimes if the early church felt like that. I wonder if the early church felt like that as they were seeking to be faithful to Christ, seeking to be faithful to Scripture, seeking to be faithful to the gospel, and yet they were constantly being bombarded. They were being barraged by constant heresies and constant heretical Christologies that would come up all the time from different directions. I've been reading a book for a couple of months. I don't have a whole lot of free time for pleasure reading, but little by little, I'm working my way through a thick book on church history. And one of the things that has amazed me in reading these pages about the early church is how the early church was constantly barraged by these Christological heresies that sprung up on all sides. 
Let me give you a few examples. One of the earliest was adoptionism. Adoptionism is the false view that Jesus' deity began at his baptism. Well, then there's another heresy that sprung up after that called Sibelianism, maybe more commonly known modalism. It's the teaching, the false teaching, that the Father has one mode, and then he turns into the Son, and then he turns into the mode of the Holy Spirit at different times. But then there's another heresy that crept in called Docetism. Docetism is the teaching that Jesus merely appeared to be a human, almost like God in a human shell. Not a real human, but just kind of a human shell pretending to be a real man. But that was a heresy as well. And then there was another heresy that sprung up called Nestorianism. It was, it was that Jesus had a divine nature and he had a human nature, but they couldn't mix. They couldn't mingle. They couldn't touch. So Jesus was sort of a part God, part man, but they didn't really mingle together in one real person. Well, that's a heresy. And then there was the heresy of Abianism. Abianism rejects the deity of Jesus because they say that can't harmonize with the Old Testament view of the one God who is a spirit, invisible God. Well, then there's the heresy of Arianism, popular by Arius. He taught that Jesus is the greatest created being by God, and thus he is not truly God. He's not creator. He's not divine, but he's a great created being. But that's a heresy as well. And then there's another heresy that popped up called monophytism. That's that Jesus only had one nature, kind of a a blending, a sharing of the divine and the human, almost like a 50% God and a 50% man sort of blending together in one. And many, many, many more. I mean, it's like the early church was bombarded on all sides and from all directions by all of these heresies, and there were many more that came up as well. Why all of that? I mean, as I'm reading this book and I'm scratching my head thinking, there are so many of these heresies that sprung up. Why are there so many? Why were they barraged so much with the error? And it's this. Because of the bottomless mystery and the divine miracle that one God, the only true God, takes on real humanity and he is the God-man in one. He is Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man in one person, one person, two natures, perfectly together. Ponder that, figure that out, explain that perfectly. And we can't. That's where our passage brings us to today. You see, we saw last week that we have a majestic Savior. We have a majestic Savior. Jesus is truly God. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. We saw last week in verse 14 that our great high priest has passed all the way through into the heavens. He did something that you and I could never do. He's God. He is majestic. He is divine. He is supernatural. He is unrivaled. And yet today, in verse 15, we have a relatable Savior. We have a relatable Savior. Jesus is truly man. How amazing that this infinite God would say to you, I sympathize with you. 
I've been there. I know what you're going through. I am a man. I am a human. I understand what you are going through. This sovereign king of the universe is the sympathizing friend of sinners. How amazing is that? How amazing. And that is our study today. Now, last week, I mentioned it, but let me say it again just by way of review. Look in your Bible at verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's the turning point of the whole book of Hebrews. It's almost like everything from chapter 1 up to chapter 4, verse 13, is all a long preacher's introduction. And it's good, and it's important, and it's necessary, but that's the introduction until he gets to verse 14. Therefore, in light of everything I've said, now we have a great high priest. And what do we do? Hold fast to that confession. Turn over a few pages to chapter 10. Let me prove this to you. Chapter 10 and verse 21. Hebrews 10, 21. This is sort of like a bracket, almost like a bookend structure. Hebrews 10, 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. So we have a great high priest, we have to hold fast the confession. So Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10 are the bookends and what we're going to look at for the next Um, year or so. I don't know how long it'll take. Hebrews 5 to 10, we're going to learn a lot about what it means that Jesus is our high priest. What does it mean that he's our high priest? Last week, we saw the deity of Christ in verse 14. He has passed all the way into the heavens. What does that mean? He did what is humanly impossible. He made a full atonement for sin. He is the one bridge, the one mediator, the one access, the one propitiation that you and I need to come to God. Jesus is the only one that can do it. But then, if you and I read that rightly, we would scratch our head and think, But if Jesus is God, can he relate to me? I mean, does he really get me? Does he really understand the weaknesses that I go through? Does he he really understand my humanity? Does he know what it is to be tempted like me? Does he know what it is to be a real, genuine, frail human being? And the answer is yes, he sure does. So today, if verse 14 was the deity last week, today is the humanity that we will look at. Next week is glorious, the availability. He calls you to come to the throne of grace as much as you need to find mercy and grace to help But today, we need to see the high priest. 
We need to see that he is infinitely great and mighty and glorious, and yet he sympathizes with you. He relates to you. He can help you. So if you're taking notes, I want to give you three amazing comforts from our verse. These are amazing comforts that will rock your world. They will help you in a moment of need, when you feel weak, when you feel discouraged, when you're in a moment of temptation, when you're in a time of spiritual testing. You need these three comforts. As we look at this amazing verse in Hebrews 4.15, here are the three comforts. Number one, Jesus, your Savior, sympathizes with you, number one. Number two, he was tempted like you. And then number three, he was sinless for you. Number one, he sympathizes with you. Number two, he was tempted like you. And then the third reality is that he was sinless for you. Now, I want to I give sort of a quick pause on all of this because... What I'm going to preach in the next few minutes together applies to you if you're a Christian. What I am going to speak on in the next little bit is such amazing truth about our great high priest. But if you're going to know him as your great high priest, you have to appropriate him by faith. I mean, it does no good if I buy children, boys and girls, if I buy you a bunch of candy and I put it at the, at the door of your bedroom and I say, it's all for you. And even your mom and dad said it was okay. But if you don't reach out your hand and receive it, it's not going to do you any good. And that's what faith is. You have to receive Jesus as your high priest. You can't just look at him and acknowledge that there's a savior out there. You need to receive him as your personal priest and king and Lord and savior. So if you haven't done that, you need to do that right now. But here's the first astonishing comfort. Let's work through it together in the verse. As your high priest, number one, Jesus sympathizes with you. He sympathizes with you. It wasn't all that long ago I came across, when I was doing some search, I came across a therapist who was writing an op-ed for the New York Times and said, everybody needs sympathy. Everybody needs sympathy. And so I began to peruse a little bit and and it's, it's almost like everybody is looking for and trying to find and longing for sympathy or someone to sympathize with them. And there's innumerable ways and places and people and venues that people go to try to get sympathy. People just want sympathy. Verse 14 gives you the ultimate, the ultimate and the only sufficient one to go to. And our text in verse 14 provides the ultimate, always available person who sympathizes with me and you. And he is Jesus. Verse 14, uh, verse 15, sorry, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Interesting, if you look at verse 15, it's a double negative. 
It's a double negative. It's a little bit weird. We think, well, why wouldn't he just say we have a high priest who can relate to us? He can sympathize. Why the double negative? We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. Well, in the original Greek, it is a strong emphasis that brings out the importance of the positive. He says it negatively so much as if to positively say, can you imagine? Can you comprehend the fact that there's the God who passed through the heavens to bring salvation to you? And he can sympathize with you. Can you imagine such an astonishing reality? We surely have this high priest. And notice in verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot, meaning he's able. Jesus is capable. Jesus is willing. Jesus has the desire. Jesus has the sympathy and all ability to care for you, to understand you, to sympathize with you. Now, let's look at that word sympathy here in verse 15, because we in English, we, you know, we, we look at that word sympathy, and we also know the word empathy, and we sort of scratch our head and think, well, what is it, and what does it mean? Well, when the Bible says here that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, interestingly, the NIV has the translation empathize. Another English translation has, he understands our weaknesses. The King James Version has, he is touched with our weaknesses. Other English translations have, he sympathizes with us. Here's what the Greek means. The Greek word means to have the same feelings as another. Interestingly, the Greek word was used for identical twins in the first century. One who can relate to, in every way, the other. It it means to enter into, almost like our idea of empathy. That's kind of the idea of this word. Jesus enters into the full likeness of, of who you are and how you are weak. Jesus has been touched with the feelings that you have. He knows it. He understands it. He can actually say, I've been there. I've been there. And what's good news about all that? It is a present sympathy. He always, in an ongoing time, has a heart of sympathy for his people. It doesn't end. The sympathy of Jesus is intense for his people. It is intense. It is passionate. It is loving. It is caring. It is a perfect sympathy that he has. It is also a comprehensive sympathy, a comprehensive sympathy. He can understand all of the weaknesses that you're going through. Ponder that. All the struggles, all the weaknesses, all the trials, all the hardships. He's been there. It is an abiding sympathy. It is a very particular sympathy that he has for you and full of compassion. Full of compassion. I mean, when you hear this, you need to hear the heartbeat of the God-man for you. 
You need to hear the compassion of the God-man for you. You need to hear the implication of the Greek word here that there's a tender concern that Jesus has for me. I mean, there's an ability that Jesus has to enter into the suffering and provide adequate help for those who are going through the difficulties of life. Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the man of sorrows. Are you going through troubles in life? So is he. Do you have difficulties in life? So did he. Physical suffering, relational troubles, emotional difficulty, family discord. Jesus has been there. He he understands it. As I was reading this week and just pondering, think about this with me. If anybody is poor, poor, Jesus said he had nowhere to lay his head. Is anyone right now going through distress? The word of God says that Jesus was afflicted with grief. Is anybody reproached for the name of God? Are you scorned? Are you excluded? Do people call you a religious fanatic and they exclude you from some gatherings? Jesus was despised and rejected of men. Are you persecuted for the faith that you have? Jesus was reviled. He was beaten. He was scourged. Maybe if you're here today, maybe you weep. You cry in silence, in seclusion, by yourself when you're all alone. Jesus shed tears as if it was great drops of blood falling to the ground because of what he would do for you. Do do you have times of mourning at the friend whom you love who has passed on from this life? Jesus can relate to that as he wept even at the grave and the tomb of Lazarus. Do the pains of death grab a hold of you? Physical afflictions. Jesus can relate as he endured the highest extremity of those afflictions. What's the point? We have a high priest who can enter into the weaknesses that you have. He's been there. He knows it. Yes, he is the God who has passed all the way into the heavens and he made a full atonement for sin and he is infinite God and perfect God and the radiance of God's glory and he made the world. But he says, I get it. I've been there. I know you. I've lived that life. I know the weaknesses of being a real person. One writer was commenting on this, and he says, As you contemplate your sympathetic priest, Jesus is not disinterested in you. He's not cold to what you're going through, Christian. Hear this. Jesus came to this earth, and he took up our human nature precisely so that he might now be able to have a fellow feeling for us. So he is totally able to represent you before the throne of the Heavenly Father. He can plead your cause. He can secure your place. And he can procure the spiritual resources that you need when you say, I'm weak. I need help. And he can say, I'm right here. I sympathize. I understand. I've lived the life. Ponder that. 
Christians, so much of our living in this life of hardship is recognizing that we as Christians do not and we cannot live by our emotions and our feelings. We have to live by truth. We have to live by what we know to be true, even, get this, even if our emotions are screaming at us the opposite. So don't do what you feel. Live by truth. So Christian, you're weak. Because that's what the text says. Verse 15, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. In your weakness, I want to give you four words. You've got to write these down because you have to believe these. Number one, Jesus never, here's the first, he doesn't reproach you. When you're weak and you come to him in prayer, listen, Jesus does not reproach you. He doesn't mock you. Jesus is not ridiculing you. He, he's, not, he's not demeaning you. He's not belittling you thinking, oh, again? Like he doesn't do that. He doesn't reproach you. Number two, write this word down. He does not slander you. Why do I say that? It's easy for us to slander people who are weak. And it's all over the media. It's everywhere. But Jesus doesn't slander his people. He he doesn't talk about you and defame your character. Rather, he upholds you. He supports you. He pleads his own merits for you. He never reproaches you. He never slanders you. Third word to write down, he never despises you. He never despises. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't grow embittered towards you. He doesn't despise when you come to him again and again and again saying, I need more help and I need more forgiveness and I need more grace and I need more mercy. He doesn't despise you. And Christian, write this word down. Fourth, he doesn't abandon you. He doesn't abandon you. He will never forsake you. Rather, he draws near to you. So he doesn't reproach you. He doesn't slander you. He doesn't despise you. And he doesn't abandon you. Christian, hear that, believe it, and you need to embrace it. That we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Rather, he understands. What a savior. What a savior. Allah doesn't do that. But the only true and living God does. This is our God. This is our God. And, and as an application, and I think an implication of this, if Jesus is this sympathetic toward us, if he is this compassionate toward us, how this ought to affect how we are sympathetic toward one another and with the weaknesses of one another. We, we ought to encourage, we ought to sympathize, we ought to help, we ought to suffer with one another. I mean, isn't the love the brightest of all Christian graces, right? 
We are to show love to the sorrowing, love to the suffering, love to the needy, love to the hurting, love to the weak. Our love should be visible. It should be heartfelt. It should be tangible. It should be sacrificial. It should be godlike. What a savior. What a savior. And what an example for us to follow toward one another as well. So if you're taking notes, astonishing comforts from verse 15. What is the first? That Jesus sympathizes with you. Maybe if there's anything that you need to hear today, it's that. You have a high priest who sympathizes with you. Number two. If you're taking notes, not only does he sympathize with you, but second, he was tempted like you. He was tempted like you. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. I'm tempted, you're tempted. We are tempted every day of our lives. And the question inevitably comes at some point or repeatedly in the heart of the Christian, does Jesus understand? Has he been tempted the way I've been tempted? I mean, in every way? It's all through the Bible. Temptation is all through the Bible. There's all kinds of teaching in the scriptures on temptation. Galatians 6, for example, verse 1. When you restore another believer who is caught in sin, look out so that you are not tempted yourself. In Hebrews 11, verse 37, the believers who were suffering, there were those who were mistreated and they were tempted In James chapter 1, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God does not tempt anyone, but we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own heart desires. The Bible teaches that temptation comes from three sources. First, it comes from the devil. Matthew chapter 4 is the great example of this. Jesus tempted by Satan himself. The first source of temptation comes from the devil. The second, source of temp- the second source of temptation comes from the world in 1 John chapter 2. The world. We are tempted by the world. And third, the third source of temptation is our own sinful desires. Our own sinful desires. That's what James chapter 1 teaches in verse 13 and 14. Now, Jesus was tempted by Satan... He was tempted by the world, but he was not tempted by his own sinful flesh, by his own sinful heart. He didn't have one. He was perfect. He had no sinful flesh. But when the text says in verse 15 that Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are, I think there's three ways in which he's tempted. Number one, in breadth. In breadth. The kinds of temptation that Jesus endured. He endured many, many kinds of temptation through his life. More on that in a minute. Number two, he also endured temptation in depth. 
meaning in the intensity of temptation. I don't know how often you and I actually do combat with the devil himself, but Jesus did. He did. In the intensity and the depth of the temptation, Jesus dealt with it. Third, not only in breadth and depth, but third, and I think most importantly here, in resistance. In resistance, he never gave in to temptation. He never, ever gave in. I mean, he took the temptation, he endured the temptation, and yet he came out victorious on the other side. You know, when you and I are tempted, inevitably there would come times in our life when we would give in to that temptation. It doesn't happen all the time. Praise the Lord, we can resist the devil as believers. We have that ability to do so. But we struggle with sin. And we do give in to temptation. But Jesus never did. He never did. I mean, at some point, we might succumb to temptation. But, but, but Jesus didn't. I mean, he came out victorious. He came out unscathed. He came out triumphant on the other side where you and I have never been. Somebody says, yeah, but can he really, can he really relate to me? I mean, here we are living in... You know, 2023, and maybe I'm a, I'm a, a man or a woman or I'm a student or I'm an employee here, an employee there. I mean, can Jesus really understand and relate to me and the temptations that I have in my life? Maybe you're tempted towards self-concern. You just live for yourself. Self-comfort. I just do what I want to do. You live for yourself. You make decisions for yourself. That was the temptation to turn the stones into bread. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus didn't do it. Maybe you've been tempted to popular acclaim. I want fame. I want power. I want accolade. I want respect. I want the applause of the world. And Satan came to him and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. In Matthew 4. No doubt you and I are tempted to comfort We are tempted with comfort, and we love comfort, and we want comfort, and we'll do anything to get comfort and not have trouble. And Jesus had that as well in Luke chapter 22 in the garden. Father, if there's any other way, any other way. Maybe you and I have been tempted for ambition, for power. We want power, almost like a worldly leadership type thing. I'm the leader. Just follow me and do this. Jesus said in Matthew 20, true leadership is not this way among you, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. He was the greatest servant of them all. Maybe it might be a temptation to distrust God's provision. How do we know that? Fear, worry, anxiety. Distrusting God's provision. Jesus was tempted to do that, to test God when Satan had tempted him in Matthew 4. But he didn't. Jesus did not give in. To draw back from following God's plan. God, I know this is what you want me to do, but that's hard. That's difficult. That's going to be painful. Drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin for all of my own people whom God chose and I will redeem to bear the infinite wrath for them. The temptation to draw back and not go through with it. But he didn't give in. He was rejected by men, Isaiah 53. No doubt there was a temptation to please man. 
He was physically and unjustly assaulted and beaten and scourged and all this in public in Matthew 27 when he could have destroyed all of his enemies. He was verbally ridiculed and insulted publicly, but he didn't retaliate. He even had family matters. I mean, get this. The book of John and the book of Mark tells us that his own family thought he had gone insane. They thought he had lost his mind. You're too religious. You're you're, you're too zealous for this. I mean, just calm down a little bit. Maybe you've heard that from others. Jesus has been there. He understands. His whole life was a life of testing. His whole life was a life of proving. In fact, you're in Hebrews 4. Just turn back a page to Hebrews chapter 2. At the end of Hebrews chapter 2. Look at Hebrews 2 verse 17. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Speaking of his human nature so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid. He's able to come to the help. He's able to come to the deliverance of those who are tempted. He was tempted like you. Now, maybe if you're taking notes, you get the theology of this and you're thankful that Jesus has triumphed. So how do you triumph through temptation when it comes in your life? How can you and I learn from our Savior so that not if, but when you're tempted, you can be victorious? Let me give you some simple phrases that I think Scripture teaches just practical helps when you're tempted. Number one, Jesus goes to scripture that he has treasured in his heart. How does he fight the devil? How does Jesus resist temptation? He does it by going to the scripture that he's memorized. You and I should do the same. Another way that Jesus triumphed in temptation. Number two, Jesus chose to obey, listen, even when it doesn't feel right. I mean, Jesus, just call down all the legions of heaven and strike your enemies. I mean, Jesus, just... Take Satan's offer and get all the kingdoms of the world. You don't need the cross. Get the kingdoms. You can have the glory without the cross. Jesus, you can do that. But no, he chose to obey even when it didn't feel right. We should do the same. Third, Jesus trusts that blessings abound When you follow God's ways, he knew that there are blessings that abound when you do things God's way. Infinite pleasures forevermore at God's right hand, the Psalms tell us. 
It is always better to follow God and to walk in his ways, even if all of culture is going this way, and yet God tells you to go the opposite direction. You do what God says, knowing that there are blessings in that. Fourth, when we are tempted, we learn from Jesus. He combated the devil with fasting, prayer, Scripture and perseverance. It doesn't come easy. How did Jesus fight? He combated the devil with four primary things fasting, praying, Scripture, and perseverance. I would argue, Christian, we should do the same. In life, when we are tempted, there's one more we learn from Jesus. Number five, Jesus believed that God was sovereign to deliver him and deal with the wicked. He knew that God was sovereign to deliver him, and I know, God, you'll deal with the wicked. I mean, Jesus could have destroyed Caiaphas, Annas, The Sanhedrin, he could have when he was mistreated, but he didn't. He kept entrusting himself to God who will judge righteously. Christian, that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. If we are going to triumph when we are tempted, we can learn from our Savior in the ways that he triumphed as well. And... Just quickly, before we close this point, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, is such a great encouragement. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Christian, don't say, I can't do this. Don't say, I had to give in. Well, no, you don't. No, you don't. You have a faithful God. You have a powerful God. And he comes to your aid, and he will help you when you are tempted. And praise God, back to Hebrews chapter 4, we have such comforting realities that a Savior, a high priest, can sympathize with us. We have a high priest who was tempted like us. He can relate. But number three, let me just give you this in your outline. As we finish Hebrews 4, verse 15 for today, and I think this prepares us so well for the Lord's Supper here in a minute. He was sinless for you. Hear that. He was sinless for you. Now, do you see it in our verse, Hebrews 4, 15? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. He had to be the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. He had to be the unblemished male like the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, 5, with no blemish or spot. 
We have been redeemed not with silver or gold or any other perishable thing, but with the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1 verse 19 tells us, we have a perfect Savior. And verse 15 ends by telling us about this perfect priest who sympathizes with you. He's without sin. Now, there's a lot here. And a lot of books have been written on this. So I want to boil it all down into three simple doctrines by way of conclusion. We have to get the doctrine of sinlessness. Jesus was sinless. I mean, if he ever would have sinned, he would be disqualified. If Jesus ever would have sinned, he would be totally useless. If Jesus would have sinned, he would be absolutely powerless to save us. But he had to be sinless in order to be our representative. He had to be our representative substitute because we are sinful, but he's sinless. So he had to be spotless and blameless in order to be our representative savior. But there's more here than just a sinless Savior. Because, interestingly, if you look carefully at the end of of verse 15, it's not a verb. The verb is not, well, he didn't sin. It's actually a noun. There's no entity of sin in him. Here's the second doctrine. It's the doctrine of impeccability. That's a big word, impeccability. You see, we all acknowledge Jesus didn't sin. We get that. We know he did not sin. That's important. The Bible says that it's everywhere in the Bible. He did not sin. But then there's a follow-up question. Could he have sinned? Hmm. Well, he was really a man, and he can sympathize with us. And if he really is a man, then I guess he could have sinned. That would be the doctrine of peccability. But yeah, but he's God. And God doesn't sin. He can't sin. That would be the doctrine of impeccability. I think the Bible teaches, and I think this is the strongest support right here in this verse, the doctrine of impeccability. Jesus could not have sinned. He had a real divine nature that was clothed with the real human nature. One real person in two natures. Now, you think, oh, well, Jeff, if you say that he couldn't have sinned, well, then um, was he really a man? Could he really relate to us? Could he really have been tempted genuinely if he couldn't have sinned? Absolutely. You see, Jesus was tempted not to see if he could sin, but get this, in order to prove that he could not sin. The question was never on the table, could Jesus sin? I think the point is to prove he could not have sinned. It's like the temptations kept bombarding him on every side, and he kept resisting, and he kept resisting, and he kept resisting until that divine nature was right there, and every temptation bounced off. He couldn't have sinned. Couldn't have sinned. Jesus received temptations, the full intensity of temptation that you and I will never begin to experience. 
with all of the unrelenting pressure of temptation that you and I will never begin to experience the fullness of it. And yet Jesus stood strong and he stood victorious and God in his human nature experienced it genuinely. But in his divine nature, he could not have sinned. Jesus is impeccable, sinless, impeccable. And then there's a third doctrine that you could jot down. It's the doctrine of righteousness. It's the doctrine of righteousness. Because Jesus is sinless, and oh, aren't we thankful that he's sinless, because that's credited to my account. I mean, the fact that your Savior and my Savior is without sin, meaning without to- totally separate from the entity of sin, it means that all of that divine righteousness, all of that divine obedience is credited to me so that you and I are qualified to have a spot in heaven. I love the way R.C. Sproul said it. He said, you better believe it, you're saved by works but they're just not yours. They are the works of Christ, credited to you by faith alone. That's the only way that you and I could ever be saved. The doctrine of Christ's righteousness. Paul brings it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. But by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. What does that mean? It's all God's doing. If you're a believer here today, it's all God's doing. It is all a work of God that you're in Christ, that you're united to Christ, that you've been savingly baptized into Christ, that you have been joined to him in saving faith. It's all God's doing. It is all a work of God. And when that happened, Jesus is your wisdom. He is your righteousness and your holiness and your redemption. The question for you and me today is, is this true for you? Has the sinless one credited all of that perfect righteousness to you by faith? If not, you have no good work to bring yourself to God. None. So this is the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be a Christian. It's the only way to enter heaven. It's the only way to escape hell. It's in order to be forgiven of your sin by Jesus dying in my place and to be counted righteous enough, having obeyed all of the law, which we could never do, by faith in Christ and what he did. I mean, this has to be your identity. It has to be your hope. It has to be your boast. It has to be your position to be saved. And this is the beauty of Hebrews 4, verse 15. In context, what's the author doing in the sermon? He says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and he has brought salvation to you and he's done something that you could never do by entering into heaven and offering a full atonement. 
But the same one sympathizes with you. When you feel weak, when you're going through difficulty, when there's discord, conflict, hurt, pain, sorrow, suffering, rejection, loneliness, Jesus relates to you in such a loving and sympathetic way. Now, what does all that mean for us? So what does that mean? Let, let me give you some brief words as I draw this to, I think this is my second conclusion. I said conclusion earlier. This is my second conclusion. It means, number one, that you're washed. If, if Jesus is your high priest, you're washed. All of the stains of all of your sins are washed away. They are washed away, all of them. I mean, even the ones that you forgot about that God didn't. And the ones that you will commit in the future, they're all washed. It means, number two, you're justified. Because if Jesus really did take your sin, and if he really did forgive you fully, and if he really does reckon you righteous before God's judgment in heaven, you are right now in the state of being justified. You know what that means? Quite simply, the judge will never look at you and say guilty because you're justified. Number three, if you're a Christian today, and this is true of you, you are freed. You're freed. You're liberated from the bondage of sin. You, you, you don't have the stronghold and the despair of sin anymore. The truth will set you free, Jesus said. Number four, with Jesus as your priest, you're adopted. You're adopted. Why? Because this priest receives you to himself. He names you. He identifies with you. And not only does he hold you, but he treats you as a son forever. It also means, number six, with that, number five, that you are loved. That you are loved. According to John chapter 17, if Jesus is your priest and he intercedes for you, you are infinitely loved in the Son. And then one more. I think it's kind of the obvious conclusion here. If you're a Christian and all this is true for you, you're helped. He helps you. He helps you in your weakness. In your trial, in your temptation, don't give in to despair. Don't give in to doubting God. Don't give in to worry and fear and distrust. Don't do that. Rather, God is there to help you. He comes to us to the aid of those who are tempted. What a great Savior! So Jesus is not only the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, but he is also the sympathizing high priest who loves and he cares for his own. Okay, now my third conclusion. I'm done with this. 
The story is told of a, of a Christian man who was passing through a, a country on, on one occasion and he found his way to the home of a, of a farmer on the outskirts of a, of a rural community. And they were sitting and relaxing on the front porch one day when, when a newsboy came by and was delivering the evening paper. And when this newsboy was coming to the front home of this farmer, he noticed right by the front door there was a little sign that said, New Puppies for Sale. Wow, and he loved little dogs, and he thought, wow, new puppies for sale. That would be great. And so the the young paper boy said to the farmer, how much do you want for those new puppies? And the farmer said, $25, young man, $25. And the, the boy's face totally dropped. He was sad. He didn't have that money. He said, I don't have enough for that. Well, as they were talking, the farmer whistled, and the the, the dog came around the corner with all the little puppies, and they were all jumping and leaping together. And, and yet about, a, about 30 seconds later, there was another little pup that came straggling and dragging itself and sort of awkwardly hobbling around the corner. And, and the young paper boy said to the farmer, what's the matter with that little dog? And he said, oh, that, that little dog is, is crippled. We took her to the vet not too long ago and got an x-ray on that little pup, and it doesn't have a hip joint. The leg will never be right. It'll never be able to walk normal. It'll never be able to run. It's just kind of a useless little pup. And suddenly the boy had a big smile. And the paper boy said, well, h- how much can I, can I offer you for, for that one? I want to buy that crippled little pup. I'll give you a dollar, and I will pay you more and more and more until I've reached the $25. And the farmer said, you don't want that. Again, I told you it'll never be able to run. It'll never be able to jump. It'll never be normal. And right then, the paper boy leaned down and he lifted up one of the pant legs under his jeans, exposing the iron brace and the leather knee strap that he had holding together his own poor twisted leg. He had a leg that didn't function properly. He had a body that wasn't really altogether normal. He couldn't run. He couldn't play. He didn't have all the the normal means of running and leaping like others. And so the paper boy said, Sir, that pup right there, I will buy it because it's going to need someone who understands him to help that little pup get through life. And I get it because I've been there and I will care for that little Isn't that what Jesus does to people like us? We're weak, frail, feeble. And yet he can look at us and he can say, I've been there. I understand. I I can relate to you. I've lived the life. I've gone through the suffering. I've gone through the trials. And he came out victorious and he succeeded. What a great, sympathizing high priest. If he is not your own personal high priest,